All right, we are in part 40 in our study of law and gospel. We don't have a lot of time left for this hour, but we'll make the most out of it. Uh, Today we introduce thesis number seven. Thesis number seven. I'm not going to go back and review uh, the, the end of thesis number six, but thesis number seven reads this way. The word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first and then the law, sanctification first and then justification, faith first and then repentance, good works first and then grace. So I'll read this again. The word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first and then the law. So thesis number seven is going to focus on which order these things have to be talked about or which order they, in which they should be preached. Now, we, we can talk about the preaching and teaching aspect. I think the main thing is to realize there is an order in understanding law and gospel and which comes first and which comes second. So we'll go through this again. So it, according to them, and remember we're treating each thesis almost like a hypothesis, saying this is what they're putting forth, and then we're kind of testing it, seeing whether we agree or disagree. They are arguing that if you're going to rightly divide the Word of God, it has to be properly divided in in regards to the order in which you preach or teach law and gospel. So it's not rightly divided when gospel is preached first and then law. If you preach gospel first and then law, that's not rightly divided. That's the wrong order. Second thing they, they, they give us is sanctification first, then justification. We have to learn justification before we learn sanctification. If you put sanctification before justification, you, well, you're going to have all kinds of problems. Next, faith first, then repentance. All right. Now, which is interesting because a lot of people would argue repentance first, but Okay, so that, that, that one may lead to some interesting conversations. And then lastly, good works first, then grace. So you can see that what they, what they, they really want, they're like they're, it's, it's interesting because in certain situations, the law would be first, right? Law first, then gospel. But then after that, you would have justification first, then sanctification uh, well, well, we'll go back through all of those. But the bottom line is there's a very important understanding of this order. So we're going to go through them, and they're going to give us four types uh, of this perverse sequence are possible. There's, there's, there's four different ways of, of messing up this sequence, and they're going to try to lay, lay this out. So we'll just kind of, we'll at least introduce this and then see in the next hour if we can really dig into this. But we'll at least try to give a basic understanding. According to them, a wrong division of the Word of God occurs when the various doctrines are not presented in their order. And and I I guess the main thing I want to stress here is you you could sit there and go, well, wait a minute, this is just for someone who's teaching or just for someone. But no, it, it has something to do with all of us because we can believe this in the wrong order. We can emphasize one in the wrong order. And if you look within the church, I think the order is messed up in the way we emphasize it. And, and what happens is when someone first gets saved, we emphasize the gospel, we emphasize the gospel. The minute someone is saved, 
what we almost do is forget the gospel and we emphasize, well, you got to do this, 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 you got to do this. And if you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this, then you're probably never saved. So immediately before we realize it, we have flipped it around. And then what we're giving everyone basically is law, 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 law. And then the gospel, I don't even know where the gospel fits in. After you're saved, I don't know where the gospel fits in. It's who knows? It's somewhere, it's somewhere forgotten. We'll say that it's still there, but it's almost like, well, yeah, you, you have the gospel. Yeah, you're forgiven. And then we start throwing in the but, however, and which almost cancels it out. And it all becomes about basically a moral system. So I want to make sure we understand that this is just not, because it's easy to look at this thesis, thesis and go, well, that's just what the church should do, or that's what a pastor should do. This has something to do with the way we should think. We have to think about these in the right order. So I'm going to try to emphasize that aspect of it, all right? So let's read this again. A wrong division of the Word of God occurs when the various doctrines are not presented in their order, when something that should come last is placed first. Four types of this perverse sequence are possible, right? So here we go. In the first place, the order may be distorted if you preach the gospel prior to the law. Now, what they mean by this is when you're, especially when you're dealing with someone who's not saved, what do they need first? They need the law. They need the law. Why does someone who's not saved needs the law first? Right, because they, the gospel, because here's what happens if you don't, and, and this is an important thing to consider. If you're dealing with someone who's lost and you give them gospel without law, what have you turned the gospel into? What will the gospel become if you don't give them law first? Basically, the gospel becomes, hey, if you're lonely, Jesus will be your friend. If you're depressed, Jesus will fix all of your, your depression problems. If you're, you know, uh, what, what are, if you don't have any purpose in your life, he'll give you purpose. So Jesus becomes the solution or the gospel is presented as a solution to what kind of problems? Emotional problems, a lack of contentment, a lack of peace. It's, it, it's, a, it's a solution for something that the gospel is not really there to solve. And so a lot of times this, this happens is like, uh, especially sometimes dealing with young people, say at church camp or some of those places, they almost present Jesus at, like the, they will immediately emphasize the problems and feelings that most teenagers will feel at some point in their life, right? Don't feel like they fit in, feel, you know, confused, whatever the case may be. And then they present Jesus as a solution to that problem. Then the teenagers, then they'll tell a sad story to get them to cry. Then they come to the altar, cry a bunch. Say, okay, I, I've got Jesus, and so now I've got a friend, now I've got all of this, but he's not the solution to those problems. The sol- Jesus did not come to fix all of those problems. Jesus came to do what? Save people from their sin. So what the people need, whether they're young, old, no matter, that what they have to understand is their sin. And how do people understand their sin? The law. So you present the law, then they see the then they see the problem, and then you present the gospel as a solution to that problem. If you don't do that, Jesus just becomes a therapeutic solution to everyone's emotional hang up, and that 
The church has been doing that for way, way too long. And here's what happens. You think that Jesus is going to fix all of those problems, and then what do you realize? Not necessarily a solution to all of that. Not a solution to all of that. This, this has led to major problems within Christianity. It was a major problem in the late 80s, uh, somewhere into the 90s, and, and it created a lot of problems and a lot of pushback, and the church became divided. And it became divided over this. Um, there were some churches, if someone came with uh, suicidal thoughts, depression, or any of those things, they would basically say, look, you don't need counseling. You don't need medication. What do you need? You need Jesus, and he's going to fix all of these problems. So uh, that this led to a major pushback on any kind of psychological counseling or any kind of antidepressants. It was like, no, Christians don't need that. You just need Jesus. Well, Jesus, the Bible never presents Jesus as the solution to all of those problems. He didn't come to fix all of those issues. So sometimes counseling is not only necessary, it's, ex- it's perfectly acceptable and okay. When would be the only time it would become a problem within Christianity? Is if the advice they were giving was against the scripture, right? But uh, depression or anything like that, that's just an illness like any other kind of illness, Right? I mean, if you don't say, well, man, I broke my leg. I can't, I, Jesus is the solution to my broken leg, right? I, mean, I hope you don't say that. That would be really, really bad, okay? So, so I, and this is what happens is we've almost turned Jesus into a solution for things that he didn't come to fix. So the church had this major pushback, like, nope, you don't. And, and it led to some serious issues, lawsuits, because church, because um, people would come to the church saying, hey, I'm suicidal, this. And they're like, okay, well, we're not going to get you any help. We're not going to do anything. And then the person would kill themselves. And then the church would almost be found responsible because they said, you don't need anything but Jesus. That's, that is a dangerous, dangerous situation. And it really comes down to this. Jesus is not the solution to that problem. And I know when I, people hear me say that online, they're going to lose their minds. But I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't present it that way. Now they say, well, in Christ, you'll get a peace that passes. I understand that there may be blessings that flow from the gospel, but he came to do what? Save us from our sin. So what we have to do is people need to hear the law and then the gospel. And so what I want you to realize, if you present the gospel first, what you're doing is you're presenting the gospel as a solution to things that aren't the problem. Now, you may say all of those issues relate to sin. Maybe they do in some way, shape, or form. But again, still, what's the correct order? Law, gospel. Show them their sin and then present Jesus as a solution to what? Sin. That's the th- that, that has to be the way it works. And I, and I understand this because I was utilized, my first pastor basically utilized me to present the gospel in an incorrect way. My, he took my sad, sad story of the abuse and all the horrible things that went, happened in my family. Then he put me in front of in, in pulpits to tell teenagers all of the sad stories about the bad things that happened to me. And then guess what I was supposed to say? Now that I got Jesus, it's all better. And so the gospel that I presented to young people wasn't, you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. The gospel I presented is, I've had this horrible life. I tried to kill myself. Here's all these horrible things that happened. But Jesus solved all of my problems. 
right? Which is just a complete obliteration of anything related to the God. I mean, that's just, that's, that's pure evil is what it is. It's, it's absolutely wrong. And whenever I hear preaching like that, it makes me very upset because it's not the way it's supposed to work. So let's make sure we have this. What it, the, in the first place, the order is distorted when what happens? Gospel before law. And what happens when we do that? The gospel is presented as a solution to a problem it was never meant to what? Fix or solve. Does everybody have, I want to make sure we have that down. All right, we have to have, we, we've got to have that down. All right, it's so, so very important. All right, because I, I don't know where we lost that, but man, it, it, Jesus is presented like an info commercial that he's here to fix all of these things and call now, and it's not the way it's supposed to work. Here is the, uh, here's the scripture they give us. They give us Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, which is a very important verse. I could ask you why, where this is important, but okay. If you're a Catholic, you know Mark 1, 15 on Ash Wednesday. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. When the imposition of the ashes take place, sometimes the priests will say these words. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. This is how they're utilizing this. Repent is plainly a law utterance. Now, this is important. Some people make repent a gospel utterance. They're saying it's a law statement. Why is it a law statement? Why why would we think law is a... uh, why would we think repent is a law utterance? Well, it comes from telling you to do something, right? It's a command. Repent. Now, this is where it gets a Now, we've got to be really careful here because we, if we're not careful, I think we can slide over into some possible error here. So let's, from a Reformed perspective, we do believe repent is a, a command, Yes? I think, I think we need to be dogmatic about it. It is a command. It's an imperative. Repent. Now, what we believe from a Reformed perspective is he commands us to repent, but who gives us the ability to repent? God. Now, this is where the church is massively, massively divided within Christianity. Some people believe it is a command, but who can obey it? Anyone. Simply by what? An act of their will which we would reject, right? We don't believe. Why, why do we believe people can't repent? Because we're dead in our trespasses and sin, and we can't do anything that would be pleasing to God in any way, shape, or form. God has to grant us the repentance. But I still believe it's an imperative. It's a law. It's a law, right? So, and I believe, I think there, in some ways, you could argue the next statement is a, an, an imperative as well. They're going to try to separate these two statements as they're going to put one as law and one as gospel, and, I, and I, I struggle with this. So let's look at this. So look at Mark 1.15. I, I know we're going to get into, possibly get way into the, way, way lost with this, but we're going to have to spend some time on this one. We've got to really think this one through, all right? So Mark 1.15, let's read it. 
the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and look at the two. Repent ye and believe. Both seem to be imperatives, are they not? Both seem to be imperatives, which is very, and this is where it's very important, because you could, this is why some people would argue, some people would argue, and, and, and I'm not saying that this would be a theologically correct argument, but some people may try to say something, well, clearly we're saved by works, because we repent, and we believe. And if you say that you repent and you believe, do you see where you kind of led to? Almost a salvation by works. The reformed argument would be what? He, he, he gives the command and he gives the repentance and he gives the faith. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Now, if we say that, then, that, then we, we believe that we're maintaining that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, because what he demands, he gives, right? He demands what, what kind of righteousness does he demand? Perfect. And what kind of righteousness does he provide? Perfect. Imputed righteousness, not practical righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Does he demand uh, repent, repentance? Yes. He grants repentance. Does he demand faith? Yes. And he grants the faith. So in a roundabout way, what, how would we look at Mark 1.15? We would look at it as a law passage. Now, some people would say, no, the believe is, some people would say the, the repent is the command and the believe is an invitation, inviting us. But I, it's not stated as an invitation, if I can say the word right. He's not inviting us, he's what? It seems like he is commanding us. So that, that could raise some, some questions. They, they, they state it this way. Repent is plainly a law utterance. In the preaching of our Lord, this comes first being followed by the gospel summons. Believe in the gospel. I, it, when everyone is here, it'll be interesting how much disagreement this, this brings forth. Um, I, I, I don't know. How do you draw the distinction that one is a command and one is a summons? What's a summons? Yeah, someone look up the definition for summons. Yeah, I'm having a hard time with that. Like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if I am agreeing with this. Yeah, yeah, summons. Oh, well, if you're Stacy, you never... There's a, there's a summons right now in our refrigerator for jury duty that she... She has yet to go to jury duty one time. See, it's an order. So how did they? How can you cut a gospel summons? It's a no. It's a law. I I I do not believe. I I disagree with this strongly. Does ever? I'm going to make the argument that both are law. Right? Agreed. They're both law. They're both commands. They're not, we're not being invited to do something. We're being told to do something. And what are we be to, being told to do? To repent and believe. Now, if we say that we're saved by our repentance and our belief, do you see how, now, this is very, very important. Do you see how this can lead to then an actuality? Now, now, now we got to be very careful how I say this. Now, so listen to, I got to make sure I offer a clarification here. Now, some Reformed people would say this, but I'm going to disagree. 
The majority of Christianity in 2022, and most churches, we would agree, are not reformed in their soteriology and their theology. We know that, right? Most churches are not. And so they would argue that they repent and believe is something that they do, right, by their free will. Now, from our perspective, that we could argue, and this is what some Reformed people would say, that's a false gospel because they're being saved by works. Now, I understand that theologically, right, in the terminology and the way they think it is, but I'm not going to accuse them of not being saved and that they're saved by, I'm not going to accuse them because I think that that's unfair. I think that their understanding is flawed, but I think if they believe in Christ, obviously their salvation. I'm not, some people would say, say, no, they believe in a false gospel. So they're all, all of those churches are false and none of those people are saved. I think that's, I think that's crazy. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair. But I do believe it's problematic. It's seriously problematic. Does that make sense? Because if, if you're walking around saying, I repent and I believe as an act of my free will, then you are, your salvation is based off an obedience to a command. Two commands. Meaning then you're saying your salvation is back. They would say, no, 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 no. But you, you realize the problem they walk into, right? If they say it's not them, then why did you repent and believe? And if they say it's because of God... Well, then why, why did God give you repentance and belief and not the other person? And then they walk right into having to believe in what? Election, which then they would lose their mind and say, I don't believe in. So you got to choose, right? Either you are believing by that you're saved by works or you believe you're saved by what God did it. For us, it's very simple. These are, these are laws. These are commands. Do this. Now, why do we, why does anyone ever obey it? God has to give us the repentance and God has to give us the faith. So, do we see this as, and it, so how, how is it law? It's law and gospel, right? Repent. That is a law. Believe. Law. Now, how does it become gospel? Christ grants you the repentance, and grants you the belief. All right? So I think that's, so I don't know, is there, I, there's still the order, I guess the order still is maintained. Which comes first? The command, and then what comes second is God doing it for us. I think that's, I think that's the only way to understand that. That's just an interesting verse to consider. That's an interesting verse to consider. Yeah, that... All right, we'll have, we're going to have to come back to that because it's going to lead to lots of... Uh, I'm not going to want to waste a whole hour on that in the next hour, but everyone has to hear us talk about that. All right, so go to Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. All right, everybody there? Acts chapter 20, verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and let's see here, do they have, do they quote any more? 
No, I think that's all they, that's all they quote. See, but you see the order? What comes first? Repentance and faith. Same, same order, right? Now, this is the way they, they describe it. The apostle preached repentance first, then faith. The law first, and then gospel. But what we... Now, there... Again, we have the same... We, it's the same situation, right? Repentance and faith. Now, there it's not necessarily spoken of as an imperative, really, but what, what do you have to do? What, what are the two things required? Repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. And, and I, we've, well, we'll have to address this. We'll have to address here because this raises another issue. Now, we talked about this in, in some great detail early on in this series. I know we're in part 40, so a lot of people don't remember number one, number two, number three. So let's remind ourselves of this. In some churches, this even becomes a bigger issue. Because they define repentance as what? How do some churches define repentance? As a turning from. It's more than just, I mean, you're literally, you have, now what they will say is you don't necessarily, it, they really play a weird word game here. Well, it's a turning away from, but it doesn't mean you actually have to turn away from your sins first. They say you have to be willing to turn away from your sin, and then you'll know that your repentance is genuine. How? If you actually turn away from your sin, but that don't tell us exactly at what day is that supposed to happen. Like, if I, if I get saved on Sunday, and I say, I'm willing to turn from my sin, but on Tuesday, I'm still committing said sin, then was it, was I truly willing to turn? Like, that, that leads, I, I don't know how people practice Christianity that way, because that leads to, I, you would never know you're saved. Because I guess the minute you go back to the sin, then you weren't really willing to turn from it. I, I, I just don't know how that works. We, I have a major problem with that definition. So let's, let's do this. Go, go to Mark 1.15. Go back to Mark 1.15. I know we've already done this, but let's, let's do this again. Because this, this raises, these are going to raise some serious issues. I, I wasn't really, I didn't think this through of how many issues this, these, these things cause here until all of a sudden I started talking. I'm like, wait a minute, we've got problems. All right, if we go to Mark 1.15, if you're using the Blue Letter Bible app. All right. The repent, we've talked about this Greek word. Is this Greek word? Strong's G, 3340, metanaeo. 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 And it's uh, used 34 times. Metanaeo is used 34 times. And it is to think differently or afterwards to reconsider. Right? To think differently. That is literally what it means to think differently. The outline of biblical usage to change one's mind, to change one's mind for better. Right? Metanaeo is a change of mind. A change of mind. Now, what we always want to do is we want to, we want to add more to that, right? The simple definition of repentance is what? To change one's mind. But what do we always want to say? We, almost every church throws this in there. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And so without inadvertently, what do we always do? What do we emphasize? 
The behavior, we, the, the behavior, the behavior, the behavior. So if you're not careful, please note how this can really turn into a very works-based system. All right. How are you going to be saved? You have to repent. What does repent mean? A change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. You have to change your behavior. So then you'll say, but wait a minute, do I have to change my, fa- my behavior first? And then we, they, they, there's kind of a, a game that Christians play. Well, no, no, you don't have to change your behavior first. But if there's no change of behavior, then your repentance isn't genuine. So how do I know when my repentance is genuine? Based on that change of behavior. How much change of behavior? Well, you have to change some. So, and, and again, the, the change then becomes focused on what? external, not internal, which that becomes all kinds of problematic. And then we only look for change in certain areas. The whole thing becomes a problem. Here's what I, I want to emphasize this. We have to, I think we have to do this, that when it comes to salvation, repentance, its primary focus is that I change my mind. Now, how is my mind changed? In what ways is my mind changed in repentance? Well, before I become a Christian, Think of, I doubt I'm going to see sin the same way I'm going to do when I become a Christian. Now I'm going to see what that, that behavior that I was doing is what? Sinful. Because I've heard the law, and now I am changing my mind saying, that law is true, I'm a sinner, that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong. What else am I changing my mind about? Well, hopefully I'm changing my mind that obviously God exists, Right? that Jesus died for me. So there's a change of mind in this stuff. Now, some would say, are you going to say it's not going to lead to any change? I'm not saying it's not going to lead to any change. I'm saying that the repentance is simply a change of mind. So we should preach repentance. Sometimes this gets into a weird argument that the Lordship people, they'll say, well, they always preach repentance. And then some people on the other side will say, we don't need to pre- preach repentance. No, we always preach repentance because the scripture preaches repentance. But we preach repentance in what way? Change your mind and believe. Change your mind and believe. Now, whatever change of behavior, that's a whole separate issue, but it can't be used to judge one's salvation. And again, who changes the mind? God changes the mind. And, uh, and who gives us the faith? God grants us the faith. So we have to make sure we, it, we... This becomes very, very, very dangerous in creating an entire works-based system. And so it becomes a works-based system in two ways, if we're not careful. If we believe that we, on our own, and our own will, we repent... And we believe that's works-based because we are obeying a law in order to be saved. And we're the ones doing it. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, it becomes even more works-based if you say repentance is a change of behavior because now my salvation is not just based on me changing my mind. I have to actually change my behavior and I have to change my behavior relatively quick. Because if my behavior doesn't change relatively quick, I'm not saved. And if you say God is the one who changes the behavior, well, then you see the problem that's going to lead to. Why wouldn't he change my behavior then to perfection? Why would he change my behavior in some little small way while I'm still committing 927? That, that just leads to, there's a promise. So it becomes very, very, very works-based. So this really, I, I know that the goal of the book is to really try to get us the right order. I think what we are discovering is this has everything to do to understand are we saved by 
grace through faith or are we saved by our works? So we have to keep repentance as a change of mind. Faith and both of these are commands or imperatives. And how, do, how are they obeyed? God is the one who does it for us. God is the one who does it for us. All right? He, our, our mind is changed. And what else happens? We believe. And it's just the fact that he gives us faith is going to be a change of mind, right? If I, because I'm going from unbelief to belief. So in a sense, God accomplishes the repentance by giving us faith because that changes our mind. Does that make, does that make some sense? All right. So go back to the Acts 20 passage. I, be, I believe it's the exact same Greek word. Let me look here. It was Acts what? Oh, it's actually a different Greek word. Hang on, let me look here. It's uh, Acts 20, 21. Let me look it up in the Blue Letter Bible app. I think it's a different Greek word. Let's see if it has the same concept. Acts 20, 21. It is, it's probably going to be a variation of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just a variation of it. It's this Greek word. Maybe the same one. Strong's G, 3341, Metanoia. Okay. Metanoia. Metanoia. It's just a variation. And guess what it means? It, it, it means uh, basically a reversal. Okay? It's a change of mind as it appears to one who repents of purpose he has formed or of something he has done. It's basically a change of mind. It's just another variation of it. A change of mind. In fact, Thayer's Greek lexicon gets the very first thing they have. A change of mind. So all of these are a change of mind. I don't know how the church turned it so much into focusing on behavior, 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 because the Greek word is change of mind, change of mind, change of mind. But we can't, it's almost like we could not tolerate that. We couldn't tolerate. Why do you think the church was so like, well, we, we, we got to make it more. We got to make it more because we're always concerned that, quote unquote, we're going to make it too easy. And we've got to get that change. Of, we got to get that change of behavior. We've got to get that change of behavior. But church has been trying to get that change of behavior for 2000 years. And what continually shows up in the lives of believers and in every church? Sin, 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 sin. Because all... Salvation is my mind is changed and I believe and God is the one who accomplishes both of those. Does, and it, does it always lead? I, I know this is dangerous to say. I think we have to at least acknowledge whatever supposed change we see, right? We got to be very careful because typically whatever change we see at, at best, it's usually surface level. And guess what comes along with the supposed change? Sin and failure, sin and failure. So, I think we have major issues to to consider there. We're almost out of time, but that's okay. All right. Um, so the so we'll at least get this in the first place. The order may be distorted if we preach gospel prior to law. Everybody got that one? I'll just mention this one. The second perversion of the true sequence occurs when sanctification of life is preached before justification. So now they're saying the issue becomes when sanctification is preached before justification. Now this one I think again is going to be, this is going to be subtle how this happens. All right? Everybody, so, so let's at least do this. Everyone understands the basic, 
distinction between uh, justification and sanctification. What are the basic differences between uh, justification and sanctification? What are the basic differences between the two? Okay? Justification is instantaneous. Second thing about justification. A legal declaration. A legal declaration, right? So it's instantaneous. It's a legal declaration. What else? What's the basis of justification? Well, it's by faith, but it's based off what? Christ's righteousness being imputed to me, right? Not by my righteousness, not by my, by my works. So justification is what? Number one, instantaneous. Number two, a legal dec- declaration. We sometimes refer to it in theology as what kind of a justification? Starts with an F. Oh, come on. Forensic. Forensic justification, right? Meaning it's legal, right? Third. Well, we may add that one in there. So number one, it is instantaneous. Number two, it's legal. Number three, it's the basis of it is Christ's righteousness, not our righteousness. Number four, someone just said it. Starts with an M. It's monergistic, meaning it's the work of God alone, right? Everybody got that? Now we'll, we'll work on sanctification here in just a minute because everybody is pulling up and now everyone's going to show up. We didn't get very far for Sunday school. All right, well, it's going to be the shortest Sunday school lesson in the history of mankind. All right, all right. So everyone got that, yes? All right, we'll have to stop right there. All right, Lord God, we come before you this morning. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to be able to try to understand these things. It's complicated and difficult and puts us at odds with many, but help us understand the actual teaching of law and gospel and help us understand the correct order so that we can believe it that way and teach others the correct way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,